Boxcaster online. Authorization accepted. Uplink confirmed. Begin transmission. Howdy, howdy, and welcome to this very special edition of After Eleanor. The oh my god, I'm so excited! I just let's just run into it. Uh, I'm here with my co-host Greg Dan, and that was the uh, sultry tones of David Whitek. And uh, on a third tell line, here, tell him who's here. Tell him who's here. <laughs> give me a chance. On a third line, not far up the road from me, I, uh, I believe, if he's at home, is Mr. Dan Abnett. Good evening to you both. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing very well, thank you. Very well indeed. I love how I was all excited and saying, tell them who's here like they don't know, like they didn't read the title of the damned episode. I'm, where's my brain? <laughs> I'm just kind of excited. This is actually funny. Uh, can I start off with a story here? I hate to interrupt, uh, you know, right after we introduce people, but I did meet you once at Adepticon, Dan. Right. Um, and it was really funny, though, because I was, I, I, I didn't, I don't play a lot of 40K and I wasn't into Horace Harris, I was playing fantasy, and uh, I believe it was uh, Bill King who was sitting next to you. Yeah. And I came up, and I was looking over there, and I walked up, and I saw him there, and I was like, oh, my God, the guy who writes Gottrek and Felix. And so I came up, and I'm all excited, and I walked up, you two were talking, and you're like, oh, hey, he's like, oh, hold, and he was talking, and he stopped, he goes, just a second, he goes, here, here's the guy you want, and I was like, what? And he's like, did you want to talk to Dan Abnett? I was just like, I'm sorry, I don't know who you are. <laughs> and everyone around us looked at me like I had lobsters crawling out of my ears. And even he was like, what? And I was just like, I just wanted you to sign my contract in Felix. And it was just so funny. I felt so bad. Well, but it was just like, you laughed. You were a good nation. You're like, well, hey, not everybody can. It was just, oh, I felt so stupid. Well, yeah, I, you had no reason to. Bill is a Bill is a... Terrific guy and a, and a brilliant writer, and indeed has uh, has been a mainstay of, uh, of of Games Workshop fiction for a great a great length of time, much longer than me. And uh, he uh, he deserves all the praise he gets. And in fact, I don't think he gets enough. I just, it was just so funny though, because apparently there was just tons of people. Because it was you you had just written something. This was about three four years ago, and I, it might have actually been. I don't think it was Legion that just came out, but it was something that just came out that you wrote. And so, because people were flocking there, when I walked up, I was like, oh, another person for you. And I was like, what? Ooh. <laughs> oh, I was so embarrassed. Everyone was like, you're an idiot. I walked away from the table. Everyone's like, you're an idiot. I'm like, oh, oops. But so, thanks you- for coming on the show anyway. <laughs> <laughs> after, after that, how could I refuse? <laughs> I think um, where where Dan's concerned, uh, at any time you could say something had just come out because it's, I think it's fair to say that you've released uh, a fair few books in your time. Uh, yes, it's fair to say that. <laughs> I think yes. I, in fact, I have lost count. Uh, the last time I counted, it was fifty novels. Uh, but I think I may have accidentally written one or two since then. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> on top of those novels, of, of course, we got all the uh, the shorter pieces as well. But I mean, you're probably best known widely for your comic work. There is that too. Yes, yeah, yeah. That's that's why I keep myself freshly cloned all the time. So I just work in shifts, and as one clone body falls away, the next one takes its place. And indeed, uh, the last couple of years, you've you've got another video games market. That's true. That as well, yeah. Uh, that 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 was uh, that was a, a refreshing, uh, interesting challenge. Um, mainly because uh, I was approached by game companies because I was a storyteller, not because I had anything to do with with games, and they wanted me to to bring storytelling to to certain games, which I've I've done and enjoyed enjoyed. It's a very different dynamic. I mean, I'm, writing a novel obviously is a very solitary occupation. Although when you're working on the Horus Heresy, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a group thing because you're working with a, with a group of authors and writing a comic is more of a team experience because you've got the artist, the editor, the inker, everybody else, you know, sort of, so there, there is sort of back and forth there, but a game, game with games, quite literally, you, you, you have to, you know, be in a room with a lot of people throwing ideas around and that's, it just, it makes, uh, it makes for a very different type of brainstorming, a different ideas process. And, uh, and I think that's, but one of the reasons I do as much work as I do is not because I'm just stupidly greedy. It's because I, I like to keep busy and like to keep ideas bouncing around and to be able to move from, from not only one 
project to another, but one type of project to another, uh, I, I feel it keeps me very much fresher. I think I write better stuff when I'm doing a lot of diverse things than if I'm just focusing on one thing to the point where I get sick of it, and then 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 I think people can tell. So so that that variety is uh, <laughs> is vital to my creative process. That's my excuse, and I'm sticking with it. <laughs> Brilliant stuff. So your your links with um, Black Library go back to the beginning, don't they? Uh, yes, when it was all fields. Indeed. <laughs> um, you were there when, when you were writing for Black Library before it was Black Library? Well, it was correct? still the Grey Library, right? It was, yeah, yeah. Quite, yeah. No, I, I was, it must have been around about 95, 96. I had been, by that stage, working uh, as a writer for probably the best part of a decade, writing comics, and had aspirations to write novels. In fact, I'd written several novels of my own sort of in my spare time, as I laughably refer to it, and uh, wanted, wanted to pursue that. But basically, you, you, you kind of go where the work is. And if somebody's commissioning you to write comics, that's what you do. And I loved writing comics. I still do. Um, and I also had a, an awareness of Games Workshop because in, as, a, as a kid and as a student, I had been an enthusiastic uh, uh, RPGer, um, Dungeons and Dragons, Traveller, Traveller particularly, Call of Cthulhu, RuneQuest, that kind of thing. And so I was very used to going to my local branch of Games Workshop when it was uh, a, a multi-denominational store to, uh, to, 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 pick, to pick up those kind of things. And obviously, although it, it sort of came slightly too late for me in terms of my, my, my gaming, was aware of uh, Warhammer and, and Warhammer 40,000 and very, very aware, having read White Dwarf for so many years, of sort of the Games Workshop flavor, the style, the, the sort of particular combination of artwork and and, and, and concept that, that made them their, what they did themselves incredibly distinctive uh, and it was in in the mid 90s when the black library was was i think having its second go at sort of starting up uh, they were starting with uh, uh, comic book work and i was approached as as a comic book writer can you come and write this stuff uh, i was recommended by um uh, an art, a Welsh writer artist called David Pugh who was doing stuff for them back then in, in Inferno uh, and it was on the basis of the fact that I'd written some issues of Conan for Marvel and they went, oh you can do sword and sorcery let's see if you can do it in our style uh, so I was, I was hired as a comic book writer uh, wrote some comic stuff pretty quickly made it known that I like writing prose too and they offered me some short stories one of the very first short stories there I wrote was, was just sort of made up as I went along the thing that turned into Gaunt's Ghosts, and it was a, it was just it was just a, a, a short story idea, you know, Imperial Guard, and suddenly that that has become now a fourteen novel sequence, uh, and on the back of that, the the editors said, "Would you like to write novels for us? We want to do novels." And I went, "What a fantastic opportunity to do the thing I've always wanted to do, but directly for somebody who is interested in it, commissioning it, and wants a particular type of content. It gives me great direction and focus." And that was how I started writing novels for them. And sort of the, 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 as the comics, and I mean, I would still write short stories, but as those two things sort of became less, the novels became the big thing. And it, and it, and it, and it broke my uh, career wider open from just writing, just being a comic book writer to being a novelist as well. Excellent. Um, were you going to say something, Dave? Uh, I was just wondering, and I know you've probably answered this a bajillion times, but once again, I came into the whole party late. But... Um, you know, as as that as, as writing the first of the Horace Heresy novels. I mean, originally, did they pitch it to you? I mean, were you doing part of a trilogy, or was this going to be some huge? Sco- I'm just kind of curious as to what you knew about it and what the plans. I mean, because I, I mean, you couldn't we've have planned had, it to be this this juggernaut, could you? Yeah, uh, we, we did, we've had. Sorry, sorry. we had we've had uh, Jim Swallow on and he's given his little kind of what happened at the start. So it'd be great to hear yours. Right. Uh, I'm sure it doesn't vary much from, from Jim's. I mean, but basically we, we, all the stuff we were writing, particularly with 40 K, we were all writing novels for them, Graham and, and, and Jim and, and myself and, and a whole bunch of writers. And, uh, what we could do was, was put stories that were set in that milieu and exploit every 40 K resource we could, but we couldn't do anything as it were, world changing we couldn't break the toys we couldn't move move the universe the universe had to retain its 40k-ness and we were looking at trying to reference all the historical stuff and, and the horus heresy was sort of untouchable it was it was our clone wars it was the thing we referred to for color but it was something we didn't go and go and explore 
And obviously they're a testament to why going back and exploring the Clone Wars is a bad idea. But, but when they, <laughs> they find something, maybe it was such a, such a thing that people wanted to see that, that this was, so it was a very deliberate policy on, on Black Library's part. They said, we're going to do novels. We're going to tell the story of the Horus Heresy in novels. And we're going to lead the way and we're going to fill in all the details. We're going to make sense of all the contradictions and everything. And a, a group of us, and it must have been about six or seven. I'm trying to remember exactly who was in the room. But the, but the sort of reliable writers were summoned to a summit at, uh, at Games Workshop headquarters. I say headquarters, it's a dungeon. And <laughs> they sat us around a table and, and Alan Merrick came in and briefed us. And he brought in this enormous pile of... Um, Old white dwarfs, rule books, codices, that kind of stuff, all marked with uh, with uh, post-it notes where he'd sort of tracked down every last reference to the Horus Heresy that had ever been, and including his magnum opus that had been the basis of the, the card game, which he'd written written history for. And he kind of briefed us, and, and, and the idea was that we would break this down. And they, they uh, it wasn't going to be a trilogy. They wanted to start off with two or three books that would set the scene, sort of big, sort of, sort of, Firing the starting gun to set the scene, and then the idea was that we would we would uh, diversify and and tell the main story, but also write novels that would explore angles that interested us, or things that hadn't been fleshed out, or fill in some gaps, or just wherever it went. So they were sort of essentially starting a second SF fiction brand to run alongside Forty K. But the big difference that there was. It was so firmly based in continuity, it was telling continuity, and it was explaining it and in places fleshing out. So it was a very different feel, quite apart from the fact that the universe in 30K is different from the 40K universe. So there was a very different weight to it. It was actually the intent of what we were doing was very different. And um, and it was, it was sort of decided that I would write the first one and Graham would write the second and Ben would write the third to get the ball rolling. And in fact, I was writing the first one whilst Graham was writing False Gods. So we were... We were sort of batting ideas back and forth. I was setting things up. He described it once as, as I was like a tennis match where I was knocking balls into the air for him to smash. So I was sort of <laughs> just feeding him stuff as I went along so we could, we could develop that. And, and, and it sort of, well, I say it sort of worked. I didn't mean that ironically. It worked. The process worked for us. We were staggered by the response, delighted. It was sort of what we could have hoped <laughs> but, but couldn't, have, couldn't have definitely guaranteed. And, and therefore, the run of books from that did exactly what we planned, which was to to diversify, to consider the Horus Heresy as a big historical event like, say, the Second World War, and then write the stories in it that appeal to us, which, which theatres, which types of troops, which, which, which historical figures we wanted to focus on, but do it in a generally chronological order so that we didn't sort of lose control completely. And that's what we did for quite a while, and I think, I think beyond the scope of what we're going to talk about today, but, 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 uh, but it, it sort of became apparent later on that all other people loved the Horus Heresy, and they they loved that that diversification. There was a hunger for the core story to be maintained. That, that they didn't want a book that they considered to be fascinating, but not central to advancing the story of the Heresy. So more recently, we have sort of narrowed our focus again and got on with what we consider to be the core books, possibly at the expense of some really fascinating things that we could have done that we just just don't fit that remit. But we just really wanted to focus on it and sort of make the series progress as the first three had done. By, by concentrating on on that that key setup and key things where each book you felt was another another chapter in the story rather than another event in a greater whole if that makes a makes any sense but it was a very bizarre very bizarre experience i remember the the meeting sort of vividly as being being this huge experiment that in hindsight seems so ridiculous that it wouldn't be <laughs> well received <laughs> i think but, yeah. uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> as as a I know as a reader um reading from since the early 90s uh, as soon as it was announced it was like yeah that's a surefire seller and it's it's always one of those things when you're creating something you you can't have that surety about it. Um, well, I, think, I think there is uh, I I mentioned jokingly the clone wars but there is that that something that sounds atmospheric and fascinating because it's part of a mythology Often doesn't bear scrutiny when you start to tell you tell people what it was really like, uh, yeah, because yeah. you can see perhaps. I mean, the Horus Heresy was invented as an umbrella continuity uh, piecemeal. It was invented bit by bit over the years by people just putting in colour text and fleshing it out. And actually, when you start to draw lines between those things, there are massive contradictions, and there are all <laughs> sorts of things that sort of afterwards don't really make sense that we have worked incredibly hard behind the scenes to make sense of often by creating story that links 
things together and makes 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 not just sense of them, but makes greater sense of them to try and sh- reveal things that were always there that that, that that hadn't been revealed. But it wasn't it wasn't a guarantee. Just because everybody liked the Horus Heresy and thought it was cool, didn't mean that the books would satisfy them unless they captured the epic scope and were not just you know. 40k novels with the serial numbers scratched out and, and a new logo put on them. They had to feel very different. Yeah, well, they certainly achieved that, <laughs> and that is for sure. And that's been carried on by uh, by Forge World as well, uh, really yeah, well. Yeah. Um, but if we if we jump forward to Legion now, yes. uh, Legion itself was a different book in that series. In uh, fucking uh, Strabo. Had- yeah, we we had a, a space marine book with not many space marines in it. Yeah, um, yeah, we did. Well, I, I think it was Legion, if nothing else, is a prime example of the sort of diversification that we intended to do, and we have done since several times. But it was a key a key example of that. It was like what you know, not not what is the next chapter uh, in the sense of what's the next part of the story, but what aspects, what are the interesting aspects that are, are underdeveloped or, or you're not going to expect? And, and uh, I think Alpha Legion was suggested to me as a place to go, really to establish the idea that the course of the novels would be broad and would explore all sorts of interesting things. And Alpha Legion seemed to make enormous sense, because, literally because it was a secret hidden part. I mean, the very nature of the Legion meant it, 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 it lent itself to the idea of suddenly doing a book and people going, what the hell's that got to do with everything? I mean, they're very interesting and they were there, but they're not part of the spinal storytelling. And to show that, in fact, they were deeply and significantly part of a spinal storytelling. And uh, and it was – so it really is an example of the sort of books we did – we would, we were striving to do, I suppose, between those first three and, and, and our modern tightening of the remit. It was that perfect diversity book. So, you know, we're on the seventh book in this series, and I'll, I'll admit I've only gotten up to – I'm only at, like, Deliverance Lost. No, no fear is after Deliverance Lost. That's that's where I'm at at the point. I'm, like, on 18 out of a bajillion. <laughs> but um, I thought it was interesting, you know, because I came into this new. First of all, you confused the hell out of me as a reader who did not know the 40K world starting to read Horus Rising. <laughs> uh, I just remember reading going, wait, what, what, huh? Because, yeah, you know, and that's part of your writing style, which I want to get to in a minute. You know, but you got the trilogy, and then you get Flight of the Eisenstein, where you get, you know, Garrow, and he's just amazing. Then you got Fulgrim, which was kind of gross, and Descent of Angels, which I was confused about. And then we get to Legion, and there's, like you said, there's no, not a lot of Space Marines. This, for me, as a, as a, as a, as a sort of an, I guess, an outsider a bit, was really cool watching this Legion just sort of pop up and all the spy stuff. But um, what really fascinated me, and I wanted to ask you about this little bit in here, uh, you got to write parts that the Emperor was in. Yeah. And as a person, once again, I love whenever he shows up like because he, he's fascinating because you never get to see him. He's so far beyond. What was, he, what was it like trying to write this character that has to be such an enigma and such a thing? What was it like trying to write the? You know, I'm imagining that you, you, you know, there's, it would be easy to overdo it for him. Yeah, no, it really would. We we've had long, many, many long discussions around the the summit table and with Alan Merritt about about how to do that and, and, and different approaches. In fact, we had one. There was one brilliant afternoon I remember where the the, the Horus writers and Alan discussed it, and he kind of completely off the record opened up and told us everything he'd ever thought about the emperor and who he was, which we've never been allowed to repeat. But it gave us a wonderful insight into how we could handle something like that. And the way I see it is, is the emperor is sort of, he is this sort of, uh, what's the word? Um, luminous, numinous being uh, that is, appears to you the way that you want to see him. So although he may have a sort of conventional look that he's a, that appears when when there are images of him, he is sort of everything. He's such a potent thing. He almost defies his physicality, uh, and I, and that was the the approach I took. That it was it was somebody that the the person relating the story could talk about because he'd had a personal experience, but it might not be the same as the experience another person would have uh, if they met the encounter the emperor, uh, and that sort of gave us a way in because it, it, it sort of. There is a there's there there are different viewpoints in all the novels because there are different writers and different characters involved. But that seemed to be the, un, the that that thing seemed to be the unifying factor is that everybody sees the emperor in a slightly different way, um, and and that is a, a useful a useful tool to use when writing him. And and also less is more. The less you say about him, 
the more it suggests, I think. And I think, funnily enough, just you say Legion's a novel without space marines. Obviously, it, it kind of isn't, but it, it, it's, it's without obvious space marines. And the same is true there. I think, I think to write a novel where space marines turn up but are operating in a way that you're not expecting, so the point where they're not actually recognisable to begin with, um, shows you how interesting space marines can be, but also how cool they are when they're being space marines as well. Because I think if every novel was just space marines turning up and being space marines, it would it would start to pall after a while. But to show that that uh, that range of their abilities, uh, and and I think it's the, it reflects the sort of the nature of each uh, each legion, their particular attributes and, and strengths. Uh, the very fact that the Alpha Legions is stealth and subterfuge and and concealment uh, means that you need to portray them not just because their stats are slightly different and they're good at different things on the gaming table, but really portray them fundamentally differently, so that from the word go, you know that these aren't people who work like other. Space Marines do. Um, so again, it, it is that contrast. So, so with both with the Emperor, it is the, it is the it is the it is the it is, it is showing and not showing. And with with the Legions, it's it's showing them in a very different way. I, I've often been I will digress slightly, but I've often been uh, received great great praise praise and compliments, which I've appreciated for the uh, Eisenhorn novels. And one of the reasons that people seem to like those is that they are not conventional 40k because they're about an inquisitor they're a step away from what is usually represented in in 40k novels and actually that distance gives people a, a much more exciting grasp of the more recognizable elements like space marines and imperial guard and i think the same thing with legion it was it would be by stepping aside from where you expect the books to go uh it, it makes the books seem fresher maybe that's my theory again i'm sticking with it I'll, I'll add to that. Um, I've always felt, and I've always rallied against those guys who were just like, we want more space marines. That when it's just space marines, you've just got a fight. But when yeah. you've got humans and other people, you've got something to fight for. Yes. So it, it creates a base standing from which we can understand what's going on and feel what's going on in the rest of the galaxy. There, there, there is, yeah, there, there, there's lots of things that we, we hit very many times when we're writing both 40k and 30k. Uh, space marines are fantastic, but they're, for a start, they are all very, very similar to one another. I mean, by the very nature of what they are, they are. And in fact, that was one of the things I had to crack in order to write Space Marines and things like Iron Snakes and that, is, is how to give them character without making them not Space Marines. And, how to make, and it was usually from the perception of the outsider looking at them uh, that that thing sort of worked. Uh, and in 30K, Space Marines have more personality and character than 40K Marines do. They're not as stagnated and indoctrinated. They are, they are more capable of a greater awareness of life and of culture and all sorts of stuff like that because they are meant to be these wonderful forward-thinking things, not mindless fighting machines. But even so, there is a danger that if it's just Space Marines all the time, all Space Marines all the time, that it becomes, it becomes relentless. And to give them humans around them, like you said, gives them a, something to fight for. It shows what the cause is, what the nature of the, of the struggle is and what the value and, and success or failure is going to be. But it also gives you an opportunity to, to get into the heads of humans looking at space marines. Space marines are much, much more impressive when seen from a human perspective than seen from a space marine perspective. That's and so you get that shock value of, of, of the sheer bulk and speed and deadliness of them. And, that's, and that was another good thing to do. That's what I actually wanted to uh, say about that was there was two things, and I'll go back to the one that we talked about, The Emperor, in a minute, but that was the, this was the first book because, like you said, Space Marines all the time. I thought it was really cool, but you get used to them, and they kind of look, even when they're protecting the humans, like in the first trilogy where they're picking, but they're almost like pets almost. Like some of them really feel this need to protect, but they almost, humans come across as pets. In this book, this is the first time when, um, oh gosh, why am, I, why am I blanking on his name right now? Oh, the... Uh, Oh, he's right in the beginning. Hold on. Let me find his name. Ugh. D Greg, help me. Oh, don't. My, my mind's gone back now as well. Bronzy, yes. Yeah, yeah, I know okay. who you are. So, Bronzy's <laughs> sitting there. When he first sees, when he goes to sneak out anyway, and the space marine shows up, he's like, you were told to stay put. It was kind of cool. He sees him standing there, but all of a sudden, when he goes to pull the gun on him, and then he just flinches for an instant, and the, the, he's, the space marine's on top of him. Yeah. And it's like you don't get that with Space Marines fighting Space Marines. You talk about the speed and the quickness and how humans are impressed. But it's like you said, watching it through here when they just show up every once in a while, I guess it's, I guess it's akin to sort of like seeing Superman or Batman show up and do something in front of you. No, it's that, just like, that, oh, my God, what just happened, you know? Absolutely a very good analogy. I mean, I, th I think if you've got stories where the main characters are predominantly Space Marines, then you kind of end up thinking them as being your human base level. 
and 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 that they are they are the humans that you're relating to. By putting humans in there, you you understand the tiered system of the you know the, the scale. You've got humans, space marines, and then you've got Primarchs. And suddenly you've got that scale working for you, which is much more impressive. If you told a story, that, a comic story, that was just superheroes, they would cease to be as special because there would be no variation from that. But, 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 and it's something, I know we don't want to talk about the, the, the later books, but it's it certainly, just as a side note, it's something that I did in um, uh, Unremembered Empire and No No Fear, which is, is to put that contrast in literally in the scale of the people working around each other, humans, Primarchs and uh, uh, Space Marines, and and they though I don't think those books would have had the same uh, effect if if it had been all on that one level. I think you need the contrast to make the point. Okay, so uh, you know, then actually, because now I'm going back and reading them a second time for the show. When you start reading how the Space Marines get just completely outclassed by a, an exponential percentage by the the Primarchs. Like I said, bringing that down to that level where you've got guys like Bronzy and stuff, you know, who are our level, and you're like, oh, okay, and then they see how fast the space. Then, then if you go back and actually picture the Primarchs in your head, you're like, whoa, that's yeah. just. That, I mean, that's it's it's frightening almost how fast they are. No, it, should be, and it absolutely should be. They are meant to be frightening. Space Marines are meant to be frightening, and Primarchs are meant to be t- utterly terrifying. I mean, that's the simple. I mean, the only difference between them in in 40k, they are just terrifying. In 30k, they are meant to be terrifying but glorious. They're godlike uh, because there is there is an optimism about what can be achieved, which is entirely lost by the time you get to 40k. And and and, and mm-hmm. they strike awe in the in the sort of Greek god sense of the word that they are marvelous yet terrible, and 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 there's nothing you can do about them. And, and the, I, to me, part of the trick is to to make to try and make everybody see a, Pri- a Primarch is everybody seem cool. A Primarch is, is inherently cool just simply by the virtue of what he is. A space Marine's pretty cool by the virtue of what he is. And then you've got the humans. And if a human like Bronzy or Grammaticus, not that Grammaticus is strictly entirely human, but if you've got a, a character like that and then they do something cool and it's because of their smarts or their experience or a talent or a skill they've got, that also to me delivers a bit of a punch because you realize that, that in this universe – Everybody can be dangerous in their own particular way, and some people are more obviously dangerous. But but they're, they're, I, think, I think that's very cool. I think if all the humans were just chattel being knocked back and forth by by the powers fighting around them, it would you know it, they, they would they would cease to be in, interesting. And I think I think to give significance to the Grammaticuses and the Bronzes and the other characters like that, I think is uh, it, it, it 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 sort of anchors the book, it grounds it, but it also it also shows you that they are important. If the humans weren't important in the first place, none of this would be happening. Yeah, yeah absolutely. You know, speaking of Grammaticus, and I'll let you ask Christian. I got one last question. I'm sorry, I'm totally geeking out and, and hogging up the conversation here. Grammaticus, first person in seven books who's not a traitor marine to come away from talking to the emperor with anything other than awe or wonder. Like he hates him. Like, the, how, what was that like? I mean, just like that's totally surprised me when he was writing. I met that guy. He's an sob. I was like, wait, huh? Yeah, that was. There was. Uh, I'm not quite sure how Grammaticus, John Grammaticus, happened. He wasn't in my original pitch. That is to say, he was one of those occasions where I was writing and I thought, I want a character who can do that and serve this role. And in writing him, I created something that I thought, I, as I was writing, I was thinking, they're never going to let me do this. And I realized that the idea was based on all sorts of other half-remembered bits of lore from, from 20 years of Warhammer. Yeah. And, and, and I developed it, and I basically submitted it, and I said, I want to do this. I think this is a cool character. I think it's a really cool idea because it suggests a whole strand that we're not aware of. But I'm, I'll take it out or I'll alter it if you don't like it. And they said, no, this, this is great. And, and we then were discussing it. And obviously, it's a, the, what Grammaticus is, spoilers, but what Grammaticus is relates to a lot of several other characters who appear in later books and, and to a whole kind of, I was going to say conspiracy, but a shadow world that exists beyond the Primarchs that the Emperor is, is sort of part of or aware of. And, and, but it, it sort of it, it came out of pure creativity. I needed a character to do something, and he sort of had to be slightly not more than human, but 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 sidelong to human. And and as he began to form, I could see huge potential, and that's a potential that we are absolutely running with with the uh, with the full support of of Games Workshop, really, because it puts flesh onto concepts that were either hidden but they're all along, or things that they've hinted at. And I think that's uh, that was a very cool thing to do. And I love the fact that it just happened to me organically. I, you know, 
I really did think that when I submitted it, they go, "No, you got to take him out. He doesn't fit. He's not. <laughs> he's not allowed." You you did a video where you talked about um, there was a number of things in that book that were put in there that you didn't expect to come in there. Um, with the the prime one being the uh, the twin primarchs, is that correct? Yeah, yeah that's correct. Yeah. Uh, so was that, yeah, that, that, that was. That, Alan Merritt was that. That was Alan Merritt. It was a absolutely, absolutely true story. Um, I felt that every book should deliver something significant. It shouldn't just be a good rollicking adventure because we were telling a history and there had to be significant moments and twists and reveals. And, and even if the book simply put on the page in fiction form a big event that we knew from the, story, from the, uh, from the history of the Horus Heresy, uh, that in itself was significant. These were momentous things. These weren't, these weren't throwaway moments. So when, when, we decided that I was going to write a, an Alpha Legion story. I said, well, it's, I want to, I want there to be a twist in it. I want there to be a big surprise and it's got to be relevant and important. Uh, and, and, and it's got to have a secret because that's what they're all about. Secrets. So the book has got to reveal a secret through the most secretive Legion. So I prepared my plot and, and I, and I was going to get approval from Alan. And, and this is the story you've heard, but I, I wrote, I, I wrote out sort of, six or seven different things that I thought, if I can get one of those, that would be brilliant, brilliant twist. And that will give the, the book the substance that it needs. And I sat down with him and I didn't know at that point that he was, I knew he looked, liked the book, so I didn't realise he, he was really impressed with what was going on and really excited by it and everything. So as I sat there with him and I went through all the different things I wanted to do, hoping to get one of them by him, I said, can I do this? He went, yes. I said, well, okay, can I do this? He went, yes. <laughs> and, and he basically <laughs> proved everything. So there I was, I thinking I'd, I'd essentially have to barter and sacrifice six of my seven things to get one by him. He said yes to all of it and then said, and by the way, do you want to put in the fact that they're twin Primarchs? So he gave me something that would have been worth, worth it anyway uh, on top of everything else. So it was, uh, it was one of those unexpected moments of, of uh, we go through approval process thinking I hope I can scrape through enough to keep the validity of this story and you end up with a, a positive bounty of stuff to put in it um, and, and that was that's a testament to the incredible cooperation of uh, of the sort of the creatives at Games Workshop about how they, they, they encouraged and how they supported and went out of their way to ex- I mean, explain uh, some of the hours that Alan spent explaining to us the complexities of the law as it stood of explaining the contradictions that had occurred and how we might want to get around them and also explaining the philosophies that they'd always felt but never put on paper publicly the sort of uh, uh, what what uh, what Laurie Golding refers to as the non-forward facing stuff the stuff the stuff the game designers always knew but never let on uh, to keep us informed to really share in the the magic so basically so we could get it right uh, and even if we weren't stating those things explicitly on the page but because we knew them the way we wrote the references would would convey that feeling, and and that was that, that was uh, I think uh, was and still is an incredibly rewarding experience. No, I'm trying to think of what I was trying to think of. <laughs> um, oh, that's right. It was. Um, I mean, I was in a games workshop, and a guy had picked up. I think it was Legion as one of the first books he'd ever read in the Heresy because he saw it in a bargain bin somewhere, and um, and he turned around and went, "Of course, they're twin Primarchs, Alpharius and you know Alpha and Omega," and uh, as a guy who'd been playing. Warhammer since 91 I was so ingrained with 20 Primarchs yeah. that it never even crossed my mind uh, and reading that secret just just blew open the whole series as to what's coming next yes it, I, it was it certainly was a, an example of 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 us realizing that we could at the very least suggest very very bold things and they wouldn't necessarily say no if there was a really good reason why the world and the public and the players didn't know something didn't then as long as we presented it that way then we could change the way things worked we could we could affect changes in the universe and say no it's been this way all along we just never told you and provided that was a satisfying reveal and wasn't just oh you know the emperor's a woman and 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 rogel dawn likes fishing on the weekend just you know that (laughs) that would be random and people go well where the hell did that come from but when you do something like, like you say where the guy says well of course they're twins alpha and omega and you go, oh, God, it was staring me in the face. The best twist, I, I love putting twists in stories. And in comics, I found the most affected twists are the ones that, that no one sees coming. But once you've done them, people go, oh, of course. 
Oh, of course that was going to happen. And why didn't I see it? And, and I think with the novels, we've tried to do that. And, and maybe that was, and obviously credit to Alan Merritt for letting me do it and, 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 and putting the, seeding the idea, it being set up there all along. But it was, it was the, one of the moments, I think, where collectively the authors went, oh, gosh, we can potentially do anything provided we can justify it well enough and it doesn't break the whole universe. And some of the more outrageous suggestions that we've made and some of the most more outrageous things that you will see, I think, have all passed that kind of, test of of under scrutiny we've all gone do you know what people will will won't believe we're saying this is actually the truth but it will make sense once they know it and that was a really useful thing to be able to do so was um okay the reveal at the end when when the when the cabal tells alpharius and omega you know what the future holds and they show them that 500 years in the future if horus wins Chaos is defeated because they've wiped out all the humans that that feed into the chaos. Was that an invention, or was that something that's sort of always been, or is, where where did that fall in the scale? Because that, that blew me away. I actually that, sat there and said, "Oh, like I almost rooted for Horus for a second. They're saying, oh, yeah. they would defeat chaos. Wait a minute.' No, that I think I think uh, modesty aside, that one was me. Uh, but that was also a, a, an effort on my part. And again, it's something we were all doing was that we wanted to show the, um, to use the word again, diversity. It wasn't simply a story where there were 20 Primarchs and half of them went, went to, to the light and half of them went to the darkness and that, that their motivations were essentially all the same, depending on what side they want. They didn't split into two teams. They were loyalists and they were traitors, but the motivation for each one of those was not the same and sometimes was should be and could be shockingly different. So I didn't want the Alpha Legion just to be, oh, you know, we've been corrupted by chaos, so of course we're joining the bad guys. I wanted it to be the most, it, to be based on information and data and secrets. Again, that's core to, core to what they are. And it to be the most calculating and clinical decision uh, because it meant that they actually are ultimately incredible loyalists. If, if the loyalist drive is to defeat chaos, and that means, and in order to ultimately defeat chaos, you need to side with traitors and with chaos in order to achieve a greater picture. I thought that's great because it means that they basically join the cause, but they don't join the cause like everybody else joins that cause. And the same is true for some of the loyalist legions. They don't just go, oh, well, I'm not corrupted by chaos, and therefore I shall be a loyalist. Or, yes, I am corrupted by chaos, and therefore I shall be a traitor. That everybody comes from a different agenda. They've got their own motivations, their own causes, their own reasons for doing what they were doing. So, again, it was an important early book because it showed that you could have a non, at that point, non-chaos corrupted traitor legion who was absolutely as deadly and as dedicated to Horus's cause as the other traitor legions, uh, but for a completely different reason. And, and I suggested that. That was one of the things I suggested to, to Alan, and that's one of the things he approved, the idea that they, they, they went in there because they had this twisted but ultimately incredibly pure reason for doing it, which was ironically and ridiculously loyal. It's basically <laughs> suicidal, though, too, isn't it? I mean, at the end, so, Horace is going to kill everybody, including yeah. apparently himself. Yeah. It is the sacrifice of the human race... Uh, as a whole, in order to stop the advance of chaos universally. So it is, it is, it is saying that the human race, full of amazing talents, possibly the most, uh, the, the, the race of the universe with the greatest potential, certainly exceeding the potential that the Eldar have, have begun to lose. They are this young race, they're vibrant, they can do anything, but actually they need to be sacrificed and they need to take that sacrifice willingly in order for the greater good of the galaxy. And they need to spend it. So it's like, it's like setting off a bomb or, or, or a fire break to stop a forest fire. You, you fight fire with fire. I apologize for using that cliche. But in order to stop the forest fire wiping out the entire forest, you blow up part of it to stop it getting any further. And that's what the human race have become. And that's the incredibly ruthless decision that the Alpha Legion was supporting. The idea that, that was that this was suicide. Human race should not survive, but in dying would allow other races to survive. How hard was it for you to come up with the delivery method for that, for the cabal? Because, um, I mean, if we talk about much further down the line, for people who, who read ahead and know, uh, things change. And uh, there's some of the conspiracy theories online for the, the cabal's kind of motives for that are, are quite quite fun to read shall yes. we say oh they show but, up again excellent um the are an ongoing thing yeah we will see them again excellent. Um, and there are some wide and varied and wild 
theories on the cabal. Um, did that was that something that that that, that kind of came to you, or was that a, a work in kind of scrubbing that, things out and trying again? No, 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 no. That was. That, I think the I think the inherent things in the in, in them as a group were, were there in my mind from the first place. And again, you've got to bear in mind this is in discussion with the other authors about what I was going to do and how I was going to set it up. And mm-hmm. I think when, you, when we set up a big thing like that, there is always the possibility that we're not going to leave it alone. That we're going to just like we like we show the shades of grey in the different primarchs and their legions and their affiliations. That something something as big as the cabal that is going to affect the course of history itself needs to be quite a complex thing. Uh, so when they first show up in Legion, they are presented fairly straightforwardly that they are united behind one message, and that message is shocking but important. Uh, but but further examination will show that there is all, all sorts of other things going on. And in fact, they might not be as unified within their group as indeed the Primarchs are not as unified within the Imperium, and that people may have been pursuing their own agendas within that, and that in itself is dark and dangerous. Um, so yes, the potential there within Legion, I think they're fairly straightly presented. I wanted them to be dramatic and uh, and big enough for them to be taken seriously by the Alpha Legion. Otherwise, it makes the Alpha Legion look like putsies who are just convinced. You know, some alien strolls and they go, oh, "Actually, you've got to sacrifice the human race, mate." Oh, all right, then we'll take your word for that. It's not that. <laughs> it's not that so they've got a bit. They've got to have that. It, 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 their, their presence should be as powerful as the emperor showing up and the giving of the directive. They, it's got to be as convincing as that. But once we've gone past that, I think there's every room for both the, the conspiracy theorists on the internet and the characters in the Horus universe to start questioning those sorts of things. What is their motivation? And the fact that indeed the cabal's motivation itself might change. They might go, well, that sounded like a good idea, but it sure isn't paying off. What you know? Yeah. What else can we do? How else can we be manipulative? And they become, I think, not to say they weren't ruthless in, in the beginning, but they become much more ruthless by the time you get to well, no, no fear, unremembered empire, and and that kind of stuff. They are, they are uh, doing all sorts of things that maybe the sense that they themselves are trying to scrub their plan or improve it or strengthen it or or whatever. Uh, yeah. I think yeah. I think with the, we, I think the idea was that when you get a a war on that scale. And as I said, we modelled it on, on the idea of writing it, writing books about the Second World War, a momentous global event. Well, this is a momentous galactic event. And even when you start that with certain policies and directives and ideas and plans, they do not survive contact with the enemy. And as, as the thing rolls on, there is that sense of desperation and of improvisation and of desperately going, well, this isn't working, do something else. And, and we've changed our minds, we don't want to do that anymore, and that kind of stuff. And I think that's where... The complexity of the Horus Heresy is going to get, or gets, and is going to continue to get really interesting as it plays out. Because, because in many respects, and I, I'll make this general comment now without talking about the later books specifically, but but the Horus Heresy is a bit like the Titanic. That is to say, you know what happens at the end. Uh, you know, you start watching Titanic, you know the ship's going to sink because that's what the story's about. It's not a surprise. There are no spoilers involved. You know where the Horus Heresy is going. So the interest to me and to the, I think to the other authors involved is not where does the story go, but how does it get there? What are the things that we learn along the way? What are the surprises? What are the, what are the parts of the story that we didn't know? And I think <clears throat> uh, when, when, when all said and done and we finally finished the series uh, in, in several thousand years' time, um, that, that the big denouements that you expect there to be there and will need to be there for the satisfying conclusion to match what you know about the law will have been delivered but they will have been delivered on, alongside things that are as big, if not bigger, that make you go, no wonder that's what history has recorded. If what you know about the Horus Heresy is, as it were, the imperial history of it, history forgets things, and it often forgets things for a reason, and it, and it draws a veil over it and makes things sound heroic. It is, after all, I'm full of cliches tonight, but it's written by the victors. History is written by the victors. So you need, to me, to, to make that story satisfying, it's... Oh, my God. The Horus Heresy needed its Kate Winslet, okay? <laughs> it at, least, needed, it at least you didn't say Leonardo DiCaprio. I didn't say that. No, I, I, I pulled back <laughs> at the last moment there. It, but it needed the part of the story that you didn't know where it was going because you knew where the big story was going to go overall, and it was the human lives contained within it that made, made the difference. And so the Horus Heresy needs that. And, and I think, provided everything goes according to plan, we've got some things plotted out that will absolutely deliver the story that you're expecting, and fill in the connective gaps where there are obviously gaps because there are some huge ones that we need to fill in because just that's the way the piecemeal construction of it worked. 
but also put in things, not that we just invented for the hell of it, but things that you go, this was also happening. On the other side of the curtain, this was happening. And I think that will be where the, the true satisfaction of your reading experience and investment of your lives will will deliver because it, that's that's where the, the, the it's the it's the unknown things that will 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 deliver the biggest punch sure, sure. I, I mean i think within that you already saw uh, grammaticus was was straining a little bit against the cabal yeah anyway right at the start so that the seeds were there to, to show that um yeah. jumping on from that quickly the alpha legion it's been said at the last heresy weekender um that the Alpha Legion have been acting, they've almost been uh, used exclusively as this secretive, stealthy, infiltrating force. And it's easy to forget there are there are uh, a full legion of space marines at the end of the day. Nothing's really changed. Um, Is that just something maybe that as a team you didn't pick up on quick enough after Legion? Uh, Because Legion had to be that secret side of it because as you, as you explaining you're you're almost characterizing the unit the uh, the legion there is that something that maybe further on you should have the writers should have jumped into earlier I, well it's quite possible i mean given that uh, we we discovering we discovered pretty rapidly as we were working through that we couldn't do everything and i think maybe yeah it, it, it would have been a good idea to do a short story or a novel or a novella or something that showed them in in full fighting gear doing their legiony thing um, and I think the thing is that when you're when we're, we're at the coalface working on these novels, the opportunity to bring in something that is a bit different, a, a space marine behaving in a different way, is extremely attractive and often fulfills enormously valuable plot structures. Uh, and so, that, yes, they, they did get used that way. Um, I don't think it's. Uh, uh, I don't think we're going to get to the end of the heresy without seeing them be. Space Marines, straight up. But but the thing is, if you're as good at doing what you do as they are, then then they don't have to do that very often because they've achieved their goals by other means. Usually by somebody getting somebody else to do it for them. Um, sure, sure. I, I think I think yeah. I, 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 there are, and I, I'm trying to think of them offhand, but there are so many things that I think if we'd been able to uh, find the time and space and books to do it, there are loads of other things like that that we would have shown. Uh, and and some of those are probably the diversity things that I said, as I said earlier. We we've begun to have to try and drop simply to stick to the core because that's what the majority of readers is begging for the advancement of the story. So there are those side things which would have been a great demonstration of an interesting point like that that we kind of don't have the don't have the space or the opportunity to do so much. Uh, anymore, although you know there 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 are always always sort of side things we can do it in. Um, the, yeah, I think the same is true of several other legions where they have been always portrayed in their, as it were, core value, and it, you then forget that they are, of course, capable of doing everything because that's what a space marine can do. So, so uh, yeah, the, 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 the same case could be made possibly most strongly for the Alpha Legion. Cool, cool. Um, the uh, the Lucifer Blacks, Dinah's chain. Yeah. Um, how much fun was he? Because he is—he's one of those guys who who bridges a little bit of the gap between human, human and and space marine. Yeah, I I I I, I love that. Again, they were just a, a spur of the moment invention. What I wanted to do was populate Legion with the. In, in some respects, Legion is an imperial army book. It was mm. it, we we talked all along about the fact that yes, the space marines have got to be in everything, but uh, this was a war where billions and billions of Imperial Army soldiers were fighting as well, and that it would be relevant and important to show, maybe do books or more than one book, which had no Space Marines in it, and it was just about regiments of Army fighting each other because they, they were bound up in this combat too. So I wanted to flesh out the Imperial Army and suggest that it was a, as, as a, an incredibly varied and interesting assembly of fighting forces as anything in 40K, and to give those regiments distinct <clears throat> characters and, and, and feels and to show that they went back to uh, the Unification Wars and that Unification Wars have produced all sorts of post-human warriors, not quite on the Space Marine scale, but, you know, they weren't just all humans. Uh, so that's where the um, uh, Bronzes lot came from. I, I love this. I love the, the, the command structure I put into that. I, you know, the, the idea that they were, they were run by these sort of psychic women and, and, and the way that worked as a regiment and the, and the, the other ones, a lot of the other regiments just sort of created by suggestive, colourful names. And the Lucifer Blacks, Blacks were just, just cool, just badass cool yeah. guys. 
and 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 they needed to be because you needed you needed again that different levels that different scales of threat. Uh, and I, I, you know, Chain as a character in there, he just I mean. The, 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 Again, didn't he stab a Primark or didn't he stab some? Yeah, he did. He, I mean, he goes up against them with the point, the point at which anybody else would have <clears throat> soiled themselves and run. <clears throat> he just stands his ground and says, "Well, I'm going to give it a go." And you go, what the "How? That guy's insane!" But he knows how how cool he is, and he actually gets pretty close to winning. And I think that's uh, that's a mark of that. But, uh, so the, the, I I want again. It was that. I keep using the word diversity, and I apologise, but it was it was that it was the idea that you know Imperial Army didn't mean just one thing in the same way that Space Marine does doesn't mean one thing, and that and that there are strengths and skills and talents and powers that 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 will be very very surprising when you when you meet them. So uh, yeah, that's that's really why they were they were they were in the book doing what they did. I know uh, I know people have made um, the, the Tanith first and only. Yeah. troops on the table and with the latest Horace Heresy book I don't know if you've if you're up to date with the uh, Forge World latest Horace Heresy book but the the militia lists are now pretty much allow you to make any of these wild and crazy troops I, I can see some Geno 52 Chiliad brilliant put on the table because no, I, I, I hope that's the case and I know I, I know of at least one custom made Lucifer Black Army as well yeah I can see a few more of them coming as well <laughs> I just like yeah. I just like Bronzy. I just like the balls on this guy. I just I gotta tell you, I love the way he walked around. When they came out of the desert and he goes at him and they're looking for what's her name, the girl that he and he goes, Hey, could you guys tell us like, just the, the 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 nerve of the I mean just I just I loved the way he wrote him and I, I know we're kinda of going off, but if we're picking humans that we liked, it's easy to like Bronzy. It is. I wanted I wanted him to be immensely likable and to have that kind of Full staffy and roguish fact that he was prepared to just go and do anything, uh, even though he hadn't got the physical prowess to back it up when it came to certain threats. And the fact, I mean, I, I, Sonic, uh, uh, as the contrast character, I felt great affection for because he's much more sympathetic and much more human, I suppose. And he's not that, he's not the sort of cocky, arrogant, charming braggart that Bronzy is. And the two of them make, I think, a, a, a lovely double act. It was lovely to write them in relation to each other and show that they had a tremendous friendship that was pushed to to the absolute limits but yeah bronzy is, was was right from the word go meant to be roguishly appealing and and also for you to feel great sympathy for him because of that that the, the, when things start bad things start to happen to him it you, you know you don't you don't want it to happen to him because he's he's a guy you like you know um now just to to talk about your your other stuff you've got going on because as we said you're a comic book writer um recently seeing guardians of the galaxy go onto the big screen and a second one coming um and computer games as well i mean uh we we get regular tweets of you you stuck in your office doing some work (laughs) um (laughs) what have you got kind of going on at the moment uh well i'm i am i am typically busy uh i am uh Writing the Gaunt's Ghost novel, the, the overdue Gaunt's Ghost novel that got 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 delayed by a number of unforeseen factors, not 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 just my factors, I have to add, uh, but that is that is fast coming to, uh, to a completion, which people will be delighted to hear because there's been a a lot of people waiting for it for a while, uh, and I'm very very pleased with that. Uh, I'm writing uh, plenty of comics for for 2000 AD, um, which I contributed to regularly. I Sinister Dexter, Grey Area, Kingdom, and uh, and a Judge Dread universe story called Lawless, which uh, I'm doing for the magazine, and and then in America, um, I, for about a, about a year ago, I started writing Masters of the Universe for for DC Comics because it would be fun, uh, and it's proved to be an immense hit. And I I just it, it, you know it, I, I just thought it would be fun because it's based on the classic toys and that kind of stuff. But there, there is an enormous audience for that, so sort of unexpected pleasure from doing something that is uh, that is going to sort of go out to a bigger audience who are eager for it than you, than you anticipate. Um, with with Marvel, as you say, Guardians of the Galaxy stuff has continued. It was a, a tremendous shock when they decided they were going to make a massive movie out of these D-list characters that I'd thrown together in a comic and then just put out for the fun of it. Uh, uh, but, but Marvel wanted to expand into the cosmic realm and they decided that Guardians was the way to go with that. So, so yes, there's a lot more of stuff that, that's going on, writing those characters and, and indeed the, the original Guardians of the Galaxy characters that uh, were created in 1969, which I, I ruthlessly did not use when I reinvented them in 2008. So uh, they're getting an outing there. And um, 
uh, and also some creator-owned stuff. I'm writing a, a, a comic series for Boom called Wild's End, which is about as far from 40K as you could possibly get, but has, has had sort of some really great praise, and it's just been commissioned for a second series. And, and, and the, the elevator pitch for that is uh, it's War of the Worlds meets the Wind in the Willows. It's, uh, it, is, it is bucolic 1930s England invaded by H.G. Wells-esque aliens, but the, all the human, in inverted commas, characters are actually animals in clothes, like Rupert the Bear. They're, they're that kind of character. And that has proved to be immensely popular and is much darker than it sounds, actually. It's played straight uh, as if they are, as it were, real people. They just happen to have animal characteristics, and that, that sort of uh, has, has proved to be very successful. And in the game side of things... Um, uh, uh, for a long time I was working on Alien Isolation as lead, lead storyteller and that was the um, sequel to the original Alien movie and that was a huge job and has been very successful and, uh, and, and award, award nominated at the very least for storytelling so that was, that was great fun thing and it was great for, to write dialogue for, that you knew was going to be read by actors like Sigourney Weaver so that was a, uh, a very cool thing to do and, uh, and, and yeah other games like that some of which I'm not allowed to talk about because they're still under NDA but, but yeah writing Orcs for the Shadow of Mordor game and uh, write, writing mm-hmm. Alien so, so yeah Shadow of Mordor was, 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 was another one of those things where they, uh, which was one of those re- the weird jobs you get offered they had the story and they had the, a beautiful game that was based on this thing called the Nemesis system that, that, that makes, means that the adversaries remember you as the player and that what you've you, what, what what your encounter was like the last time you met during the game. So it builds a story, a personal interrelation with the enemy. So they, they said, instead of having generic orcs that you simply kill all the way through Shadow of Mordor, can you create sort of 60 or 70 orc characters with distinctive personalities uh, who will then remember you each time you meet them and you will build up a relationship with these en- enemies. So that there is a, uh, and so I, yeah, I, so I, yeah, I, I created orcs and gave them personalities and, and then had to write, Something like sixty thousand lines of dialogue for all the possible permutations of how you would meet them. Uh, so and so was, I can I can shout at you when I'm playing it tonight. Yes, um, yeah, uh, various ones like the one that growls at me. Yeah, yeah, that's entirely um, my fault. Yeah, uh, excellent. <laughs> and that was that was an incredibly intense job because the jobs like that happen and they send to say right, you've got two weeks to do this, and you, you work on it really, really with intensity. And uh, I, I had told this story before, but forgive me, they, they, uh, they, 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 their, their guide to me was they, they wanted the Orcs to talk like British actors in gangster movies. So Ray Winston and um, Ben Kingsley in, 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 in Sexy Beast and that, and, you know, that kind of lock, stock and barrel type gangster <laughs> voice. And in order to get them... Oh no, it's tip top. I just don't like the colour. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. It's going to be an eruption. And I was sitting there writing this dialogue and saying it out loud to make sure it worked correctly. Uh, and I would do that all day for about three weeks until I had the lines written. And then at the end of the day, I found I couldn't stop doing it. So I get called, called for dinner and my wife would say, dinner's ready. And I go, oh, that's lovely. Thanks, love. I'll be, and and it was, I was just stuck in that mode. So, uh, yeah. There's, so that kind of thing. Game, games, games are very much more like writing uh, screenplays because you know that quite often they're going to be vocalized and they're going to be acted and that gives it a whole new feeling of uh uh just some different sense to to, to engage with um but they're, yeah they're, they're great fun I, I can't wait to tell you some of the uh some of the game stuff i've uh, the most recent one was the terminator genesis uh game that i i worked on the story for that for to support the new film uh which meant i spent six months knowing what the film was about without being able to tell anybody um, and then, and, and then I've got a couple more that I'm doing at the moment that I, I'm actually forbidden from telling people about. So, um, like I said at the beginning, it does. I feel it really keeps me fresh. And working with game designers and creators and animators and that kind of stuff, you just get fed with all sorts of. So I can have a conversation with a game designer or a game developer about something, and we get that piece of work done. And just that conversation has sparked something in my head, which may then feed six months later feed into. Um, Horus Heresy or Superman or I don't know. And it's not because I've nicked their ideas. It's just that it's, sent, it's made a synaptic connection between ideas in my head that, that, has, that has carried through to something else. You know, something that wouldn't apply to the game, I could see presents a connection that would apply, apply brilliantly in a Gaunt's Ghost novel or, a, uh, or an episode of Sinister Dexter or something. And you, you, I make a, make a point of making those notes so that I can, I can use those things and use that creative connection as to the best of my ability. Excellent stuff. Excellent stuff. And um, no, uh, have you got any more 
sorry, uh, echoing. Have you got any more of your own novels that you're working on? I read Embedded. That was um, oh. it's very different. Getting used to Dan Abnett not writing. Yes. Uh, boom, boom's main kill, but it's <laughs> very good. Yeah, Embedded was fun. I hope there's going to be another one of those. That was that was an opportunity to write Combat SF, but in a in a very very different style. Uh, I have been contracted by. Uh, I landed a contract with with Golance, one of the biggest SF publishers in the world, to write a fantasy series for them, which I am starting work on later this year. And that will, I think, the first book is out next year. And that is again, it's, it's it is world building, creating my own fantasy world. I have done a lot of research to make it give it the authenticity that I want it to have, which involved at one point uh, earlier this year standing at Stonehenge as the sun came up, and at another point this year being hit repeatedly with a broadsword. Uh, I was armoured at the time, so that was helpful. But, but uh, yeah, I, 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 I sort of went, I'm going to take my research really seriously at this point because, because I, I've always done a lot of research. I've done a lot of, and it, but it's always been a lot of reading and talking to people, and that's brilliant, and I still do that, and collect stuff, talk to people about stuff that I have no, no knowledge about so that I can, I can learn and make things in SF and fantasy seem more authentic. But I thought, actually, it's about time I got off my ass and did some of this myself. So I have done more odd things in the last year in the name of research uh, than I ever expected to. And being punched across someone's living room by a buckler to the sternum uh, to demonstrate how effective a Hallberg was when I was wearing it without warning me first was, you know, you kind of remember that. You go, oh, now I understand why armor's important because otherwise I'd be dead. So, yeah, that, that kind of stuff. I'm... Uh, there is there is a body of re- at some point I will I must I, when, when these things are published and there are no spoilers or surprises I will maybe set up a website where I can start sharing the pictures and the notes and say look at this ridiculous thing I did one day and this is why in that book this happened so um, so yeah so th- th- those 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 researching things so yes embedded distinctly distinct possibility of more of that uh, more fantasy original fiction which you know it's good and it's not like it's taking it's not taking me away from writing for games workshop it's giving me a change of pace there was a point about uh, probably about five or six years ago where everything i wrote had space marines in it and sure, sure. and as a result i think if i kept that up those books wouldn't be very good so to step away from that and write well i'm excited to listen to this now because it's actually i, I picked it up as uh, one of my audible credits off of the, you know, when it's when you buy other books, it's suggested. I'm like, oh, Dan Abnett embedded. So now I'm looking forward to listening to that one. It's the next on my queue. So excellent, excellent. It, it, it's, it is. I think there's there's some very very sort of visceral combat SF with lovely technology and stuff like that. I mean, it, you know, it's 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 not a billion miles away from uh, from from 40k, but it's got a very contemporary sensibility, and it's quite political, and it's quite acid and it's quite i don't know i was I, I enjoyed writing it one of the things i liked about embedded most if i can just wax lyrical about it for a moment, is the fact that having I, I, I just wanted to write it. it was an idea i i was really excited by and i wrote the book i was pleased with it it got very nicely reviewed it was very well received and that's terrific one of the things that delighted me because it's some years since it came out is that uh i'm seeing more reviews and essays about it and it's sort of place in sf now than happened when it first came out so at the time it was oh it's a fun combat sf thriller but the sort of not heavy political content but the sort of political comments that i was making it have made it live beyond its natural early life as the latest book to read and i've read some incredibly thoughtful and fascinating articles about it sort of reviewing it in its context of being more than just an adventure and that is an incredibly rewarding thing for me I, I, you know, just you know, immense pleasure to see that somebody's thought about it that much and come back to it and looked at it again and, and had things to say. So, um, so it's yeah, it, it in many respects it's very nice. It's nice. It's nice like this podcast is nice to talk about a book that I wrote. How, how many years ago did I write Legion? I don't know, but Ooh. but to, to go back and it's not just something that people liked. Well, that's great, and it's not just something that that people want to ask me about, but that actually it's part of a. A structure of novels that matter to people, and they want to know. They they sort of want to do that kind of fictional archaeology to know a bit more about it and how it came to be and where it sits in relation to other things. And um, uh, I guess if you sit alone in your room all day with a keyboard, it's nice to feel that somebody else cares. <laughs> <laughs> First printed in two thousand eight. So yeah, goodness me. Sorry, I was right. I was writing that while I was writing Guardians of the Galaxy. There you go. Yeah. It's ten years of the heresy today. Uh, this 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 year isn't it? Wow! So yeah, time flies. 
Speaking of which... Yeah, uh, that's it. I think we're, uh, we're running out of time at our end, unfortunately. We could unfortunately, uh, chat like yes. this for ages. But um, we'd like to thank you very much for coming on, Dan. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for, for, for stimulating questions and, and tolerating me rambling at length. And I hope at some point when you reach the next significant Dan Abnett novels in your, in your process of working through the Horus Heresy, you'll come back and talk to me again because I'd love that. Well, if you're willing <laughs> to come on and talk about Prospero Burns, I'm certain Greg would just about fall over. But I would love to have you back on for Prospero Burns, too, because that was all sorts of awesome. So. Oh, that's possibly, possibly the best book in the series. There is some fascinating... You, you, yeah, well, ask me back then because I can tell you some stuff about that. Good stuff, but stuff that make you go, really? That's very strange. Awesome. Excellent. Oh, no, I'm looking forward to it. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Dan. And, uh, folks, thank you so much for listening. We will be back in a few weeks with at least the first part of Mechanical, another book that doesn't have Space Marines really in it. I don't think that has many at all. It's a so, cool. there we go. So, until next time, folks, the Emperor protects. Death to the Force Emperor. Congratulations on completing another episode of After Eleanor. David and Greg would love you to come and chat some more about the Horus Heresy in the forums at garagehammer.net slash forum or on the Facebook page. Just search for After Eleanor. You can email us if you wish at greg at garagehammer.net or david at garagehammer.net. Finally, you can catch us on Twitter at After Eleanor, at Child of Fang for Greg and at Garagehammer for David. If you'd like to support the show, you can visit the support page on the main website at garagehammer.net and you can leave a positive review on iTunes. In addition, you can tell all your friends to come and join the community. Many thanks for listening and until the next episode, may the Emperor protect you.